can open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 11 this morning, and we're going to take on the first 14 verses of the chapter, and these verses will deal with these two witnesses, and we'll be spending a considerable amount of time talking about them this morning. I want to go back through and revisit really quickly the 70 weeks prophecy that Daniel gave in chapter 9 of his book. This is going to play into part of what we're talking about with the temple this morning, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. So the prophecy of the 70 weeks of Daniel, you can find it in chapter 9. The 69th week was concluded with the crucifixion of Christ. That wrapped up that 69th week of Daniel. And from the crucifixion until the man of sin, aka the Antichrist, confirms a covenant with Israel, that's the period that Isaiah refers to as the year of the Lord's favor. That's Isaiah 61.2. The Antichrist's covenant that he will make with Israel will mark the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. So currently, we are living between the 69th and the 70th weeks. There's a prophetic gap there, and that is the time when God deals with the Gentiles. So for the first however many years of history, God dealt with the Jews. When Christ was crucified, until Antichrist confirms a covenant with Israel, that's the time of the Gentiles. That's the church age that we're living in now. and then. From that covenant to the end, basically, it will be seven years from that covenant, that will again be a time when God turns his attention back to Israel, and he will deal with them through the tribulation. And that 70th week is the tribulation period. That seven years is punctuated directly in the middle with what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. And this is understood to be the event when the man of sin will put himself up as God in the temple, probably in the Holy of Holies, and proclaim himself to be God. And this is an act of abomination. So this 70th week is when God resumes his work with the nation of Israel. And so I want to give you that big, big picture first And now let's read through chapter 11, the first 14 verses, then we'll go back through it. Revelation 11, verse 1, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, 
And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days, and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Moving into this chapter 11, we're standing on very Jewish ground. We look at these prophets, these witnesses, and think, man, this is a little bit weird. Like, this is a little bit on the edge here. But God never does anything just to get a reaction out of people. There's always a purpose in what he's doing. And especially in the weird things. We'll see weird stuff come up all throughout scripture. And whenever you encounter something strange in the Bible, you better pay attention. Because strange things are important. And I want you to be aware that there are those who interpret pretty much everything in this chapter as relating to the church. And I don't agree with that. But as we'll see, a more literal reading of this chapter seems to make much better sense of it. And we'll go through that. In verse 2, you see there's a divide between the Jew and the Gentile. It says, leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. So actually, a very literal wall is dividing them. There is this divide present in this temple, which is clearly not there within the church. Paul said that we, the body of Christ, are all one in Christ. There's no dividing line between Jew and Gentile. The wall separating Jew and Gentile has been broken down. You can reference Ephesians 2.14 and Galatians 3.28. So this can't be the church, but what temple are we looking at here? We'll try to answer that question. Verse 1, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. John was given this reed, and it was, he says, like a measuring rod. And this was a pretty common thing at the time. These 
rods were used like we use tape measures to measure things and they would be cut a specific length and so you know what length they're cut so you can measure things from that it's also referenced this rod in other places in the scripture and these rods were usually around nine feet long roughly the length of three of our yardsticks and that's kind of how i imagine it being like a a yardstick And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So this angel is apparently the same mighty angel that John encountered back in chapter 10. And we remember a couple of weeks ago, we went through chapter 10. Uh, This mighty angel was standing one foot on the sea, one foot on the land. He had this little book. John was instructed to take the little book, eat it. Chapter 11 is a continuation of that encounter. So we're seeing that same angel here. This word translated temple is naos, which means the temple proper or the place where the worship actually took place. And this would refer to the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. So it specifically leaves out the court of the temple. It is referring to the temple proper, and it actually can refer to any uh, place of worship. So it could be a tabernacle type structure, uh, a temple or a tent, anything, an altar, something like that. He says, rise and measure the temple of God, the nails of God, the altar and those who worship there. So starting with the temple, then the altar, and then John is to measure those who worship there. And that's a pretty strange thing to say. How do we measure people with a rod? And I'm assuming that he wasn't too concerned about their height. Okay. How do we measure people who are worshiping here? I don't know. But I think there is a little more to this. What temple are we looking at? Well, this isn't the temple that we'll see in the kingdom age. The Gentiles will not be treading anything underfoot during the kingdom age. It's not a temple in the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21:22 tells us that there will be no temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. There are events on our horizon that will shake the nations. World powers will be shaken up, and no doubt there will be an intense desire for peace when the Antichrist emerges on the scene. And he'll come in making these big promises of peace. And that will be extremely attractive to the people who are sick of whatever kind of war may befall. Could be nuclear war, could be something else. They'll be sick of it. They'll strongly, strongly desire peace. And he will promise it. And the temple is right in the middle of all these happenings. Right in Jerusalem, the holy city. The religious Jews in Israel are awaiting to build the third temple. 
they're preparing to return to those Levitical sacrifices in the temple. And I believe it's this temple that's in view in chapter 11. The third temple, which will be rebuilt as the Antichrist is coming to power. But when we look at our first few verses in chapter 11, we can tell that there's something wrong with this picture. John is told to measure those who worship there. There's something in their worshiping that isn't quite right. Let's read verses 2 and 3. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So when we read these verses together, we can pretty well tell that something's out of place. The court of the temple has been given to the Gentiles. And we haven't seen that happen yet, and that's fairly strange. They, being the Gentiles, will tread the holy city, which is Jerusalem, underfoot for 42 months. They will trample Jerusalem. There seems to be some kind of Gentile rule in the city. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These prophets are not bringing good news. They're clothed in sackcloth, and they're bringing a message of judgment, of repentance. And these guys are hated for their message. We'll see that the people, the earth dwellers, rejoice over their deaths. I believe that what we have in view here is the temple as it stands during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. The Antichrist will have already confirmed that covenant with Israel that apparently reinstates their sacrifices. And I say that because Daniel 9.27 tells us that three and a half years after making that covenant, he will break it by bringing an end to sacrifices. That assumes that sacrifices were being made. So I think that this covenant will probably bring back sacrifices. And at this three-and-a-half-year mark, the Antichrist will set himself up in the Holy of Holies to be worshipped as God. And here's the thing. God's own people will willingly accept him as the Messiah. He will present himself as the Messiah, and they will accept him. Jesus said to the Jews, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And the Antichrist is this one coming in his own name. And he'll be received by the Jews as the Messiah, and he'll be worshipped by many in the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, have you noticed, it's hard not to, that the tensions of the world seem to stem from Jerusalem? It's the center of almost every tension on the world scene. Jerusalem has been made a cup of staggering to the whole world 
and those who come against it will be cut to pieces. And we've seen that in history. That's a prophecy from Zechariah 12, 2, and 3. But why is Israel, and Jerusalem specifically, such a big deal to every nation in the world? There's no oil to speak of, no major commerce to speak of. It's not a center of technological information, finance. The land is rocky. It's not really suitable for serious, large-scale agriculture. So why do people care about Jerusalem? Its significance is only religious. The Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians consider Jerusalem to be a holy city. And the entanglement, especially between the Jews and the Muslims, has lasted for centuries. And the Muslims now have control over that Temple Mount where the temple used to be. And these tensions are the root of a lot of the unrest in the Middle East. Jerusalem has been made a cup of staggering to the whole world. And I've got a little graphic we'll throw up for you about the different ideas of the placement of the temple. And you'll see right in the middle there, the arrow with traditional view is pointing to it. That's the Dome of the Rock. That is the Muslim's holy place. And south of that southern conjecture rectangle is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Both of those are holy places to the Muslims. And in red, you'll see the different views of where the Jewish temple was. And the traditional view is currently the official position of the rabbis and the temple institute in Jerusalem. That's where they believe the temple stood, right over the Dome of the Rock. And they also believe that this is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Um, but we have reason to believe that this actually happened much further north, but we won't get into that. The northern view was popularized by Dr. Asher Kaufman, and it places the temple slightly north of the Dome of the Rock. And the reasoning for this is partly because of how it lines up with the Golden Gate, uh, the Mount of Olives, and certain rock outcroppings that you found up there. But problems still remain with the northern view and traditional views concerning the elevation. There are some certain technicalities that we're not going to get into too far, but I can point you to some resources afterwards if you're interested. But there is one more view that seems to solve the elevation problems, and that's the southern view. The southern view, or the southern conjecture, was popularized by Tuvia Sagiv, and it's based on historical sources that point to the temple sitting at a lower elevation, which places it south of the Dome of the Rock and the traditional view. And the specifics of each of these views are not super important to us this morning, but I do want to point something out. The northern and the southern 
conjectures, both place the court, you can see the larger polygon outlining the northern conjecture, that would be the court of the temple. Whether you place the northern view or the southern view, that court contains the Dome of the Rock. And at the southern view, it contains the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Gentiles would be contained in the outer courts. That's especially provocative considering verse 2. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. Could it be, and this is speculation, could it be that the Jews and Muslims will come to an agreement under Antichrist that allows both groups to have their holy sites alongside one another? And is it possible that this agreement will be included in that covenant that Antichrist makes with Israel? that marks the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel? And is it possible that this agreement will also play a major part in uniting the world's major religions under this one world, one religion system of the Antichrist? Interestingly enough, verse 2 could be foretelling the Dome of the Rock being given to the Muslims peaceably. Now, this is conjecture, but it's, it fits enough pieces together that it's worth consideration. Now, let's look at verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, the only rain on the Antichrist parade at this point are these two pesky prophets seated outside of Jerusalem. And these two witnesses are supernaturally empowered by God to bring his message to a stubborn and evil world. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 1,260 days is a very specific number. And that is to be taken literally. And that number is the same amount of time as 42 months. They will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. 42 months is equivalent to 1,260 days, which is equivalent to three and a half years. And I will point out too that the Bible uses a 360 day year in prophecy. So we would generally think of a year as 365 days. The Bible uses a 360-day calendar year. So you can match up all of these numbers. The Holy Spirit has put each one in here very specifically, and I think it's to emphasize the fact that this is to be taken literally. The question that a lot of people ask is, who are these two witnesses? And, you know, that's a fair question. And while we can't say with 100% certainty, there are some good reasons that we have to believe that they are two specific men. And I've got a funny story to share with you. Several years ago, 
when I had just started at Tarleton and my little brother Cheney had just started in high school, he was at a little camp in Glenrose. So he was out this way coming from the DFW area. So I drove in one day to Glenrose to pick him up, take him to lunch. And while I was sitting there waiting for him to walk to the car, I was reading Revelation 11 on my phone. And at this point, I hadn't studied it hardly at all. So I was reading about the two witnesses and a light bulb just went off in my head. I was like, oh my goodness, these guys must be Enoch and Elijah since they didn't die. God must have had a purpose for him, took him out early, and then he's bringing them back here. And that must be who these two witnesses are. And so Cheney got to the car and I told him what I had come up with, you know, thinking it was original. And, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, that's cool. So upon looking into it more, I realized that uh, I was far from the first person to come up with that idea. But the idea that Enoch and Elijah are these two witnesses is fairly popular. And the most common argument for this viewpoint is that neither of them have actually experienced death. And that's usually what people go to, to make it these two guys. And proponents of this view will cite Hebrews 9.27. And that says that it's appointed for man to die once. So they must have some unfinished business to attend to because they haven't died yet. But this verse is simply a rebuttal to reincarnation. And it's not intended to convey what they take it to convey. Um, If we were appointed every man to die once, then what do we do with Lazarus, who died twice? What do we do with Jairus' daughter or Nain's son? There are these figures in Scripture that died more than just once. And so if you take that back, uh, I don't think that this is saying that every man has to die once. But we'll leave that there. The correct position is that this is Moses and Elijah. And I say that a little bit facetiously, but that is the most likely position in my mind. These two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. So let's read through the next few verses And we'll see some good reasons why this may be the case. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So we see that if anyone wants to harm these guys, fire will proceed from their mouth and devour their enemies. And this sounds strikingly similar to what Elijah did in 2 Kings 1. The king sent um, three waves of 50 men and their leader to bring Elijah back to him, to the king. 
And the first two, Elijah called fire from heaven down upon. He's using fire. The leader of the third party of men got wise, and he was nice to Elijah. He was a little bit more willing to work with him. And so Elijah backed off on the third group. But um, Elijah used fire there in 2 Kings 1, and these witnesses can use fire. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Not coincidentally, Elijah had power to shut off the rain in the days of his prophecy. And we can reference 1 Kings 17.1 and also James 5.17. These witnesses now have that same ability to shut off the rain given to them. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood. What does this remind you of? The first plague of Egypt, when Moses strikes the water of the Nile and it turns to blood. And strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So this also sounds a bit like Moses, striking Egypt with plagues. And these specific plagues should remind you of the trumpet judgments in chapter 8 and 9. We've already talked about how some of these judgments, the trumpet judgments, line up with the judgments that God brought on Egypt. And I mentioned briefly then, but I'll mention it again, that some people do think that the trumpet judgments have some connection with the ministry of these two prophets. Some will will think that these two prophets are the earthly side of the trumpet judgments. They're able to call these plagues down on the world as often as they desire. Um, And so we've already seen the heavenly picture of the trumpet judgments, the angels proceeding with their trumpets, sounding the trumpets, and then the judgments occur on the earth. It is possible that these witnesses have something to do with the earthly side of these judgments. Interesting for consideration. But there are also other reasons why this dynamic duo was probably Moses and Elijah. If we look at Jude 9, this piece of scripture records a skirmish that takes place between Satan and Michael the archangel. And these two angels were disputing over the body of Moses. And again, this is a strange incident recorded in scripture. Why would two of the most powerful created beings on earth want the body of Moses? What purpose would there be in that exchange? Could it be that God has a plan for Moses down the line? It seems to be a pretty good explanation for this. And if you look at John 1.21, don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. You'll see some Pharisees asking John the Baptist if he was Elijah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Have you ever considered why they asked if he was Elijah? What made that come up to be the first question that they asked? 
in asking that question, they were actually asking if he was the fulfillment of Malachi 4.5. That reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Interesting. So they were expecting Elijah to be sent before the day of the Lord. There's an expectation from the Jews to see Elijah before Jesus returns. John the Baptist wasn't Elijah, and he doesn't claim to be, but Elijah is still yet to come. And there is an expectation of that on the part of the Jews. When Jesus was transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. In fact, Peter was so impressed by this display that he makes reference to it in his second epistle. If you look at 2 Peter 1, 12 through 18, you'll see this reference to the Mount of Transfiguration. And you'll miss it unless you're reading carefully, but Peter actually tells us that Jesus, Elijah, and Moses were talking about the second coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 16 says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And this is speaking of the transfiguration event. I wonder what Moses and Elijah were doing discussing Jesus' second coming with him. Maybe they have a role to play in that event. Why were there two witnesses? We do know that the law requires two or more witnesses to corroborate a testimony. We see that in Deuteronomy 17.6. Now, I want you to jot down real quick these next few references and have a feeling you'll want to revisit them. We already talked about the transfiguration. That's found in Matthew 17. And specifically, verse 3, I want you to pay attention to. It specifies Moses and Elijah as those two men. The resurrection of Christ is recorded in Luke 24, 4 through 7. The ascension of Christ is recorded in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And these specific references are going to zoom in on the fact that there were two men in each of these cases. We assume that these two men were angels, but the scripture does not specify that they were angels. The text actually says that there were two men on air, clothed in white, not angels, agalos. Is it possible that the two men showing up at important points in Jesus's ministry were Moses and Elijah? Is that why there's an expectation of their return? This is partly speculation. I'm not saying that these were not angels, just saying that they're not specified as such. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them 
overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Verse 7 in chapter 11 is the first mention of the Antichrist as the beast in Revelation. And this is the word therion, which is different than the word that's used for the living creatures that were around the throne of God earlier in the book. Totally different words. Therion is a ravenous beast. It's a dangerous animal. Uh, The word used for the living creatures comes across as much more tame. Just animals or creatures. I want you to note the origin of this beast. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit. He will make war against them, the witnesses, overcome them, and kill them. If the witnesses are a picture of the church, this doesn't fit. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, that the ruling forces of hell, the gates of hell, would not prevail against his church. So how then could this be the church if the Antichrist, certainly a ruling force in hell, is coming against the witnesses or the church and killing them, destroying them, overcoming them? That doesn't fit. When they finish their testimony, and not a day before they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, And kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. The great city is Jerusalem. And it's further identified by the phrase, where also our Lord was crucified. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. So bodies of these witnesses will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days for people to see. Then those from the people, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. They'll leave them lying there on the street. People from all over will see their bodies lying in the streets. This is another technology statement. People several years ago might have trouble understanding how people from all over the world could actually see these witnesses lying in the street. Today, you have no problem believing that that could be the case. Just turn on CNN. They'll have it televised for everyone. The broadcasting, the media, even the social medias, you know, Almost everyone in this room probably has a camera that's capable of recording video. And almost anyone in this room could take a video and upload it to Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, what have you. It is very feasible and very easy to see how everyone could be seeing all of this go down in Jerusalem. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts 
to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So we have this phrase, those who dwell on the earth. We've looked at it before. That's the earth dwellers. Those are the people who have made their home in the earth. And that is in contrast to us, whose home is not on the earth, whose ultimate home is in heaven. So these are the earth dwellers. They are rejoicing over these dead prophets, making merry and sending gifts to one another. And instead of Christmas, it seems that these earth dwellers will be celebrating Dead Prophets Day. And it actually sounds like a celebration of a holiday. They're sending gifts, making merry, and rejoicing. This is the only time in Revelation, by the way, that we see the earth dwellers rejoicing. God sure knows how to kill this party, though, because after three and a half days of their bodies lying in the street, they're resurrected. They stand on their feet. And I think it's kind of interesting that John includes, and they stood on their feet. It's like maybe people wouldn't believe that they actually had been resurrected if God just took them straight up. But he actually sets them up on their feet, and they can be seen as alive. The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. The breath of life. I love that. The breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And I'm sure that they would be terrified. The people who were just rejoicing, giving gifts, and making merry over these guys' death, what would be their reaction when they see them stand up? I would be terrified. And I'm sure that the death of these prophets would be a big win for the beast, for the Antichrist. He'll be highly publicized. He will be the one who stopped this tormenting from the prophets. But then they stand up. And I bet that the broadcasters with their big cameras are like, oh, shut it off, shut it off. They don't want to get this resurrection of the prophets. Um, Anyways. Their enemies watch as they ascend into heaven. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Now, by this point, I think there is a widespread understanding that God is powerful, that he is in control And we see, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. I would call to question whether that giving glory to the God of heaven is a salvific event. If that is indicative of their salvation, or if it's just indicative of their terror. I don't know based on just what we read here. And their enemies saw them. 
ascend to heaven. God is powerful, and I think that that is on their minds. I don't know if it's repentant. I don't know if they will be repentant or not. A tenth of the city fell in this earthquake. A tenth belongs to the Lord. Leviticus 27, 30 through 34. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And there are some parallels in the Old Testament to the number 7,000 and even involving Elijah. You can look at 1 Kings 19, 18, and you can cross-reference 1 Kings 20, verse 15. Verse 14 says, The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And of course it's coming quickly, because if it weren't shortened, there'd be no flesh that would survive. These things will pick up speed as they start happening. Don't forget, too, that we're in a parenthetical insertion into this narrative. This just kind of reminds us of that. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Chapter 11, what we just looked at, is talking about the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. And it's giving us more details about the things that are happening during that period. So, I know there was a lot of temple talk, a lot of Old Testament in there. If you walk away with nothing else this morning, I want you to see that God supernaturally protected and empowered these two witnesses to carry out their ministry. He preserved their lives to serve his purpose, which was to bring a message of repentance to a stubborn world. And goodness, it is a stubborn world. It's stubborn even today, but we've seen throughout the previous chapters of Revelation, these guys are hard-headed. It's like the bacteria that develop an antibiotic resistance. They just get tougher and tougher as you, you try to... <laughs> Take them out. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. God has preserved the lives of these witnesses. If anyone tried to kill them, the witnesses would envelop them in fire. They were given that ability. I don't know what that'll look like. It'll be awesome, I'm sure. And I will also tell you that everyone who has been in ministry wishes they had that ability. (laughs) Spitting fire from their mouths, consuming their enemies. But look, these two witnesses are not the only ones that God protects and empowers. He also protects and sustains you for his purposes. Every one of us has a ministry, whether it's professional or personal. We all have a ministry. Your ministry could be teaching a congregation. It could be teaching the kids in Sunday school. It could be running the soundboard or keeping the church clean. And it could be as simple as being a good example to that coworker. 
and some of you are thinking of one right now, that could be your ministry. Or just being a light to your school or showing your son or daughter the love of Christ. And you could be a good example to them in that way. God is so faithful to sustain us in our calling. And I love to use the example of the tabernacle. And it's very fitting this morning because the tabernacle was a precursor to the temple. Exodus 35, 30 through 33 tells us that God provided the skills necessary for Bezalel and among others to craft the ornate designs required in the tabernacle. Exodus 35, 30 says, And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. This was a craftsman, carpenter, goldsmith, silversmith, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was empowered to carry out that very job that God had called him to do. And God still does that. He still provides for us. He still equips us. God also equipped these two witnesses for the work that they were called to. Now, there was a different toolbox that he gave each one. Um, to Bezalel, I'm sure he gave you know, skills for hammering out gold, for crafting silver. To the witnesses, he gave fire from their mouths. Very different ways of accomplishing a purpose, but just what they needed. And just like God equips these men, he equips you and I to carry out the task he set before you. So I want you to be encouraged as we go into this new year that God will equip you for the task that he will lay in front of you. And I always cringe a little bit when I hear people say that God won't give you more than you can handle. Because he will. And he uses that as an opportunity for you to realize that you have to lean on him. He will give you more than you can handle by yourself. But you have to lean on him and he will equip you to face the challenges that he sets in front of you. Why don't we stand together this morning and we'll close in a word of prayer. Thank mm-hmm. you.